This is Artistic Intelligence, where we explore the intersection of art, sustainability, and technology. This show is brought to you in partnership with the United Nations ITU AI for Good, Changing the Story podcast, and State. Now let's join your co-hosts, Neil Sahota and Michael Ashley. Hey, welcome to another episode of Artistic Intelligence. We've got a phenomenal guest today, Taryn Southern. She is an artist, storyteller, and digital personality with more than 750 million views across her online videos. She has a long-standing fascination with the internet culture and influence. A former YouTube personality and comedian, Taryn is passionate about the intersection of emerging technology, storytelling, and human potential. Over the past decade, she has architected digital campaigns for personalized genomics, egg fertilization, AI, sleep, stem cells, and biotech companies. Is passionate about ideas that enhance the well-being into the mainstream. What an impressive background, Taryn. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Neil. I appreciate you having me. Taryn, it's great to have you on today, and that is a very impressive background. Could you tell people who may not know the story about you, something that they might not ordinarily find if they were to Google you? Sure. Well, I lived my most of my early adult life online, so it's rather hard to contemplate a story that people wouldn't know about, but perhaps um, something that your audience might not know just from, from having read the initial bio was I initially got my start in entertainment on American Idol when I was 17 oh. and um, did not go the way that I had hoped it to, it would go and it did pretty sorely with me forgetting all my lyrics on national television. But that led me to, um, to studying anthropology and journalism in college. And uh, my first ever jobs in the entertainment industry involved me working for early tech companies because at the time that was kind of like a pretty unsexy thing to do if you were in entertainment to not be working in TV and film. So I worked with MySpace and BlackBerry, Verizon, AT&T, a lot of the really, Yahoo, a lot of the really early digital players hosting and creating content for them. And that was really my, my introduction into where I am now. Oh, that's awesome. So you were at the you know, forefront of like the technology. Did you know this would be like the new vehicle for like entertainment and art? It was like a happy confluence that ha- happened here. I definitely had more than an inkling. I remember back in college, I pitched a an idea to the business school wherein people could go online and watch videos of prospective colleges that they were applying to without having to visit and everyone at that conference table that i was pitching to all older entrepreneurs turned to me and said that's crazy like you can't watch video online <laughs> so it's terrible um that would have been obviously a long time ago before youtube even came out or around the same time that YouTube came out. But I remember thinking like the internet is where I get all of my information, even as a college student, why would that not eventually apply toward video and, and like, you know, more interactive content. And so of course, when that ended up happening, it was very exciting. And then I remember also in my early twenties, getting into regular fights in LA with television producers and executives telling them that their industry is going to die. And um, they did not believe me at the time. And of course, their industry didn't die. It just ended up evolving, but very much forced into evolution as a result of what was happening in the digital space. And you could argue now that the digital players, Amazon, Apple, 
Netflix are far more powerful than the you know cable TV networks that were the bigger businesses ten years ago. Yeah, and you're you're absolutely right, and you were spot on. And you know, it's interesting to hear you say that about the virtual tours for colleges because this is exactly what's going on in the age of COVID. Uh, for those families that don't have any other way and college students, any other way to preview what that might look like. So you were definitely, definitely ahead of the curve. Um, <laughs> like by 15 years. <laughs> yeah. um, and also with uh, streaming content too. Um, but going back for a moment to, to MySpace, and it's funny, it, I mean, it feels like forever ago that we were talking about MySpace. I know that you were very much involved with that. Could you fill our, our listeners in about your involvement with MySpace? Yeah. So my first TV show that I ever did was actually me and two girlfriends traveling the world and meeting our MySpace friends. Um, So we built up our pages. We accumulated a bunch of friends. At the time, there was no such thing as a subscriber on YouTube. That didn't exist. Mm. Twitter was not yet around. Uh, Instagram was definitely not yet around. So there wasn't really a... MySpace was really the only form of social media. And of course, we didn't have followers. We had friends. Mm. But even at that stage, it was very clear what happened when you could aggregate numbers, a, a, a healthy number of people around a single page. Um, so like the first MySpace celebrities, if you will, I remember Tila Tequila and Dane Cook. <laughs> and they were both, you know, they both were, were the earliest internet celebrities or influencers, if you will. And we saw the power of that. And so we built up these pages, which didn't even have that many friends. I think, I think we had each accumulated like 30,000 friends or something like that. But it was at that time, that was a really big deal. And so we went to a network, DirecTV, and we pitched this show and, and got it made. And, that, and, and so we ended up having a close relationship with MySpace. I ended up making a lot of content for MySpace in the early days. I don't know if you remember their exclusive content that they had, but... Um, did a number of different initiatives with them before they kind of went obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Dean Cook is not obsolete because before this whole thing hit, I saw him uh, in person in LA and uh, he's been having some financial problems apparently, but he is still very, very good at what he does. He was the best. Ball That's ever. good to hear. Yeah. I'm glad to hear Dane <laughs> Cook is still relevant. Yes. So how, how did this all like happen? I mean, did you just, you got 3,000 friends, might be cool to try and meet some of these th- people and we'll push it to the show. I mean, I mean, we're, we're talking we back just, in the day when the, all this stuff was just first of a kind, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we just saw the power of social capital mm-hmm. and for better or for worse. And it certainly led us down avenues that are both illuminating and quite dark as a society. But, you know, we understood the power of that as a publicity vehicle as an attention getting vehicle to be able to reach the inbox of 30,000 plus people at that time had value. And so we just knew that this story was an interesting one. And of course, if we could put a real face to the avatar, um, you know, that we had connected with on the screen, that became like a really interesting way to explore how these new mediums are impacting all of our lives and what it really means for each one of us to connect in that way. Yeah. Um, and along those same lines, before we get into what you're currently doing, I just, I'm, I'm curious, uh, as a follow-up to Neil's question there, 
Um, it is a huge sea change that we've seen in the last 20 years in the sense that all these people that I guess you could say previously were disenfranchised. They didn't have a way or a vehicle for them to broadcast their voice. It was largely a situation where a news anchor would have a one-way conversation. What, what are your thoughts about the way our culture has changed in light of these new technologies? Oh man, I had to write that word down, disenfranchised, because I've never, <laughs> I've never heard anyone describe like the YouTube celebrities today as like former disenfranchised people. But you know, it's, um, it's kind of accurate, actually. If if I really look back on how we felt at that time, and mind you, a lot of the the people who ended up building these massive empires from their bedrooms, <laughs> um you know, we're, we're kind of just like in a place of teen angst or 20 something entanglement with society. So it's, it's like disenfranchised to what degree disenfranchised can be, but you're right. I think that, um, that a lot of the early players in the space, uh, were people who were tired of being ignored by power players, Mm -hmm. by gatekeepers in media um, you know, a lot of them were aspiring actors, hosts, journalists, writers, performers who just couldn't get their day in court um, from the powers that be. And so they were forced to go to this like kind of at the time um, what was considered to be a subpar channel mm-hmm. to verbalize their message. And, and, and little did they know that that would end up being the primary form of communication that people would begin to accept. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I guess it is, it is kind of this classic tale of underdog disenfranchised individuals who are being rejected over and over again, go to the internet to raise their voices. And then all of a sudden you've got this new class of kind of um, rebel, you know, rebel influencers who are now in many cases like very successful hold a tremendous amount of money and power um and got there by rewriting the rules right of the game would you say good though i mean what are your thoughts about the the effects on our culture i think it's both good and bad for all of the reasons you probably might imagine um i mean right now i i tend to feel that it's caused more harm than good but I think it's hard not to feel that way when we live in a world where truth does not exist, where people regularly get the megaphone who are not just non-experts, but literally have no experience or knowledge in the space of which they you know, occupy thought leadership. Mm-hmm. And those, you know, those um, kind of pathologies, if you will, I'm using like pretty harsh language, but I think that they absolutely stem from a space where there are zero gatekeepers Mm -hmm. um, there to say, here's who gets the microphone. And then, you know, on the flip side, there's obviously huge benefits to to groups of people having a voice that didn't otherwise have a voice. Um, and, And I guess you can't discount that. And it's impossible to see really, you know, both at the same time to hold both of those things at the same time. But, um, but I would like to believe that at some point we can get back to some semblance of, of truth and credibility. And I don't know how we win that back. I think it's like, we've gone so far in one direction. Like, where do we go from here? I don't know. Um, but yeah, we're, we're like, we're really good now as a society at creating a shiny image of ourselves 
like stamping on some shapes, like some good packaging lingo um, and projecting images and ideas that we don't even wholly own as ours. And that is, um, I don't know, it's just, it's a really interesting time. What do you guys think? I'm I'm hopeful that the pendulum will swing the other way. I, I get everyone suddenly has a, a vehicle to carry their voice, and that could be a good thing, depending on what we're talking about. And I know a lot of people yeah. say, like, you know, the, the like the hate out there. You can always choose not to watch or listen. I don't think, unfortunately, it's that straightforward. Mm-hmm. But I think it really comes together if people create a community and a mindset, right? If people come together and say, look, we want to focus on good things or hopeful stories or information. We just think from a society standpoint, you can manage some of these things. You can never eliminate it, right? But you can actually right. manage it a lot better. But that takes a lot of hard work, right, Taryn? Yeah, a lot of hard work. And, I, and then I, you have to ask yourself who's managing that process. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and also, I mean, if I could weigh in, I, I think that, it feels like we're in our adolescence stage of this new tool. And if you think about, to use your own word, and I very much agree with a gatekeeper, I mean, the gatekeepers existed for decades, if not centuries, whether it be in publishing, whether it be in the traditional movie studio system, um, and, and definitely in the music world uh, too. And so suddenly you have these people who do have a megaphone, they do have a voice, and they're kind of figuring it out, but they're clearly making mistakes. They're almost like a, like a teenager. You know, they have this new power and they don't know how to wield it quite right. And, you know, uh, the emotions, unfortunately, that, that tend to garner the most eyeballs and attention are, are, are negative ones, uh, things that, that evoke fear and anger. But I don't think that, I think that there's a possibility that it evens itself out. It, it almost course corrects as people begin to develop um, cultures behind it and rules of engaging with each other, uh, whether um, tacit or implicit. Well, we're having a really deep conversation here, but let me let me shift gears a little bit because Taryn, you're doing so many things, and I love your online videos, by the way, especially the, the funny or die one. Thank um, you. <laughs> online videos, music, documentaries. What what are you? What's currently going on? Like what what's keeping you busy right now? Well, you know, it's changed a little bit since COVID. Like for so many people, I finished my documentary. Uh, last year, but it wasn't released until March of this year. So it was released actually the same week that COVID hit, which was an interesting time to release a a documentary. Um, And I had planned to have a number of uh, exclusive screenings, screening partners in the medical, health tech, um, biotech spaces. And of course, you know, all of those screenings were canceled. So that was a bit of a disappointment. And a lot of my speaking engagements around AI and creativity were also canceled events. Um, of course, not coming back for some time. So I actually have been hard at work on this book that I had planned to write at some point in the you know future that had been undecided and undeciphered for many years. And now I'm actually working on it. And it's called Under the Influence, A Guide to Selling Yourself, Not Your Soul. And it actually dives into all of these things that we've been chatting about for the last like 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and hopefully kind of peels back the curtain on this world of influence that we've all participated in and celebrated. Um, and that's having a lot of really interesting effects on our individual and collective well-being. Yeah, well, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I can tell you that writing a book is hard 
you know, Michael knows that before we wrote our book, I've been talking about doing it for two years. So you got to buckle down to make it happen. But, it is challenging. But maybe we could dive into your documentary for a little bit here because, you know, you're, sure. you're talking about like healthcare. What, what's your documentary on? So I Am Human, we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival last year, which was a huge honor. And essentially the film follows three patients with implantable brain interfaces. So we really explore the co-evolution of humans and machines through the lenses of these three stories. In this case, um, a man who uh, is paralyzed, a, a, an artist with Parkinson's, and a retiree who has a congenital disease that's rendering him blind. And we basically explore how brain interfaces are not only ameliorating these issues, but potentially leading us down a path of human improvement, which of course comes you know, with many um, controversial questions and um, thought exercises that we hope the movie allows audience members to you know, fully kind of understand and, um, and dive into. We are about to enter into the most consequential revolution in the history of the human race, where we can take control of our cognitive evolution. What if we could expand your capabilities beyond what we as humans have never had before? What we are seeing is that technology is becoming part of us because we are linking biological brains directly to machines. We're handing the reins of our own lives, of our own minds, to us. We get to choose how we think, who we are. We're talking about technologies that could radically alter the way we are as human beings. History is littered with good intentions. But if we start tinkering with the brain, we start changing it, are we about to fundamentally change what it means to be human? And if so, are we okay with that? That sounds fascinating. Um, so to, to go with the former idea for a moment there, could you walk us through, I mean, when I think about a person that is paralyzed and I think about, okay, here's this, there's a way that they can have a completely different experience. If you could walk us through what it was like to, to capture the positive aspects of that transformation. Sure. Um, and, and the paralyzed example is a little more nuanced perhaps than the, the woman with Parkinson's or um, you know, the blind patient. But when, you know, our, our patient Bill, he was incapacitated in the sense that he, he had to live in a hospital um, with full-time care because he was paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and both of his parents had passed away from health conditions, so he had no one to take care of him. So he was basically in this assisted living facility slash hospital, and he had a number of other issues with his spine as a result of a bicycling accident. Um, so he was really excited about signing up for this kind of experimental sci-fi like research study that was highly risky. Um, but if it worked, it would potentially give him the ability to move his limbs again. And the way the experiment worked was this, they implant, uh, um, they implant basically a chip in the motor cortex of the brain where, move, where we're responsible for movement. They learn the stimulation patterns of his brain that control the movement of his arms and legs. And then they implant 
dozens of electrodes in his, in this case, his arms and his fingers that correspond to the electrodes inside the brain so that, you know, after a series, a long series of experiments, he's eventually able to think about moving his arms in the same way that you and I currently think um, kind of unconsciously about moving our arms and his arms move um, as a reaction to those electrical signals. So basically bypassing the signaling of our real brain to our arms with just machi machinery and AI. Yeah. Wow. So, so you have to watch it to see what happens. I, I, I think so. And I encourage everyone to check this out because it's fascinating because, you know, I'm one of the guys out there that's always talking about, I don't believe in the Terminator future, right? She's not going to rise up and conquer the world like humanity. I believe in the cyborg future. It's going to be yeah. integration between human and machine. Mm -hmm. and it sounds like your documentary is actually exploring this very concept. Bill's a great example of that, right? Like doesn't have the, his, his physical body is unable to move on its own. His brain has lost the ability to communicate with the physical body, but with machines, we can restore both of those things. So how, Pretty cool. how, how did he feel when he was able to you know, suddenly get some mobility restored? No, I didn't say whether or not he did. You guys have to watch oh, the movie. Cliffhanger. <laughs> well, I, I want to jump in there for a second because uh, we like to go very deep on these issues from a philosophical standpoint. So if you could, without giving anything away with the movie, um, just tell us what your thoughts are. Um, the first you know, word that comes to mind to me is the singularity of what we're talking about here. Um, whether or not we use that term, what what are your thoughts about this this future? Um, to Neil's point, that we're headed to becoming more cyborg-like, if you will. Well, I have a lot of different thoughts, and it's a big question. And when I started working on the documentary, I was so overwhelmed um, with the number of different directions that I could take, and also feeling like I have a responsibility on some level as a storyteller to meet people where they're at. And what I found, which was super interesting was within like six months after working on the dock and being immersed in the language of this world and what was actually going on in neuroscience, um, I found myself infinitely more comfortable with the ideas that were being presented to me than I was six months earlier. And then you cut to a year or a year and a half down the line and I'm even more comfortable. And so that says something about just even human nature and our ability to assimilate new ideas that may or may not feel really scary um, at first, but things that of course over time become almost like, of course, second nature. I mean, it's, it's like probably trying to explain to someone in the 1950s what life would look like in 50 years with smartphones um, and the horror that they would have experienced in learning about our current state of affairs and how we do business through screens. Um, but I, I kind of feel similarly now, like my own personal feelings on the subject are that this, this fusion of man and machine is not only inevitable, but it's already here. We're just in the very beginning stages of it. Um, you know, there are going to be massive um, problems and questions that need to be addressed and answered, but there's also going to be so many humanitarian things that will be able to um, that will really be able to address in a way that our current technology has not allowed. Um, and I think that it will absolutely change what it means individually and collectively to be a conscious, uh, self-aware human being. Um, you know, I think like the brain is the last bastion 
that we feel we have, we feel we have control over that we don't want our technology melding with. And yet how many people feel that they have no control over their life, that they suffer from mental illnesses like depression or anxiety that control them. Um, and so I think that we'll ju- we're just going to inevitably move more and more in this direction where people will start accepting technologies that formerly they had an aversion to because they'll, they'll find a real use case for it that will benefit them. And that's ultimately what we do. Yeah, I think that's... Sorry for that long-winded answer, but... No, I think that's actually a phenomenal perspective on what's happening right now because I think I've seen familiarity actually leads to comfort, right? Most yes, familiarity bias. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, Michael and I talk about this all the time that we were always worried about the machines taking over or we losing our sense of humanity. But what I'm finding with like your, your work or, you know, a project out of Kenya called love and AI about when I teach, you know, AI about unconditional love, it seems like as we actually try and do these things, we're really diving into what it means to be human. We're doing like this deep exploration. And I think the irony here is the more we go into technology and AI, we're actually becoming more human. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you could certainly argue that or that we're just becoming a variation of human that some people like better and other people don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's like, I definitely think it will look different. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Uh, and it just depends. You know, some people really like the idea of AI coming in and, and kind of... Um, allowing us to offload low what we would consider lower order cognitive tasks like repetitive tasks that are arduous on either cognition or on our physical bodies other people would argue that's actually what makes them feel most alive is like (laughs) doing these kinds of things and so i think we're going to run into those issues for sure and it'll be a discussion um long after it's already become a problem (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I don't, and the benefit I don't disagree with that uh, but I think that's a good transition also uh, to Neil's point I mean it sounds also like what we're talking about is these technologies allow us to yes be more human perhaps but they also in some sense give us kind of superpowers and I think that's especially mm-hmm. true with art which I think is a good segue into what you're doing musically so if you would actually talk about your new album and what you're doing in that space yeah so while I was working on the documentary um, I was also doing some things in the VR space as a producer, learning how to make VR content. I was very interested in, in um, the exploration on those fronts. And, and while working on a VR project, I was struggling to come up with like a musical background for, for, for the VR that felt like kind of, I wanted something that, that felt like this kind of bizarre futuristic world and had an AI feel to it and then learned that AI was composing music and thought, okay, (laughs) I've got to, I've got to play with this stuff. And so I did, I started playing with it, made some music using a few AI platforms or softwares. And from there, my interest and curiosity just grew and I decided to, to make an entire album using these technologies and that album was called I Am, I Am AI, and I released it actually while in post-production of I Am Human and did not intend for the naming of both to reflect one another, but such is life. So yeah, so I released that album, and um, you know, it was really just a fun creative experiment for me and a challenge, like what is it like to, to have a songwriting partner that 
um, never gets tired and <laughs> is willing to work any hours that I choose. And like, how well can I creatively operate here in this space? And I really enjoyed the, the process. It was not easier than working with another human by any means, but it's also, this is technology that's finding its way. And it also is to, it's important for me to distinguish that the process of working with AI to compose music is very different depending on the software and the, the pl or the platform that you're using. Um, so it was, it was a really fun challenge. I'm, I'm happy I did it. And I'm probably going to experiment more with AI music in the coming months. A lot of things have changed since I made the album. Um, but yeah, that was, that was just like a fun creative challenge. Yeah. That, that sounds like it was it was fun and very different. I'm kind of curious, are a lot of artists like like musicians embracing these types of tools or is this one of those things where it's still kind of very early adopter for the industry? I think it's still very early adopter and for the right reasons. Like, you know, most musicians, they don't necessarily have a reason to integrate these kinds of tools because they already have a highly efficient process for doing what they do. Um, and especially successful musicians, in a sense, they're like optimized algorithms. They've already cracked the code. They know how to create the right songs and the right melodies. Why mess with that? And why inject something into that that's actually just going to like potentially <laughs> harm, you know, this process that they've, um, that they've attuned to over, over many years. But if you look at really young artists who are just starting out or artists who have always had technology as the entry point, for instance, DJs who don't actually play instruments. Those are the people who are really excited about experimenting. And I think those are the people that will create all new kinds of processes with these technologies because um, they have a vested interest in figuring it out and, and, um, and learning, you know, they'll learn vis-a-vis -vis that technology rather than through, you know, the, the old fashioned way. So I think it's definitely happening, but not on the scale that you would imagine within the traditional music industry. Yeah. It's, it sounds like nothing's really broken. So what are we trying to fix? Right. Totally. Right. And the, and the output, you could argue the output ends up being the same. Um, yeah, it just depends on what you're looking to do with the AI. I mean, you could certainly make the argument that the AI could inject a number of sort of surprising elements into a song or do something that, and, and you could, you could actually um, direct the process to end up with something that feels relatively novel or quote unquote interesting. Um, that doesn't actually equal pleasing to the ear, <laughs> right? Like right. we are highly predictable um, in our listening patterns, depending on the type of music that you like. And um, gosh, we just love the familiar as we talked about early earlier. And so, um, you know, I think the best of AI, quite frankly, is going to be the AI that best replicates the pattern recognition of top music producers in any given field. Um, and that gets scary for a lot of people in music. And for all the reasons that, um, that you can imagine, but I think what um, how I see it after having worked with it and the, the thing that I always explain to other music producers is it just becomes another tool in your toolbox that's like helping you sort of see another way of doing things or maybe pointing out things that you could improve upon. You could take it or leave it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's hard to see, at least at this stage, it replacing the natural kind of human ear that exists in creative spaces. When you um, say that, first of all, I think uh, that what if it's just kind of replicating what's comfortable in the sense that people are we're, we're imitating the same kind of music again and again, and we're not innovating. But um, I was also thinking about this the other day, uh, going back to COVID for a moment, I was thinking about Bob Marley because it was playing and how his songs were so political and there were so much about the time and the oppression that he was dealing with. And I was wondering and to myself, I, I haven't heard of any musicians that are really taking on this moment in time and expressing it in art. And I could be entirely wrong. I'm just not aware of them. But I wonder from you, if you look at something like AI, to go back to AI's ability to give us these superpowers, and yet to Neil's point, also perhaps make us more human. Do you think using AI as a technology could be a way to, I don't know, express what's going on in a way that's more powerful or compelling if it comes to uh, using it as a medium of expression right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I th- there are no rules in art, right? And and you could argue that the canvas is part of the expression um, and the tool used on the canvas is also part of the expression. And the story behind the art, right, is um, is sometimes just as important as the art itself. And we've seen that time and time again, like we imbue meaning onto objects because we are natural storytellers and that meaning is what creates the value. So some people might look at, AI as a tool and say, well, that means less to me than a human just using their bare hands. Um, Others might see that as a really interesting kind of um, secondary brain, if you will, that's coming in and like adding its, its weird computer sauce to the mix and or like social commentary that is embedded into, into work that is reflective of today's times. So, um, you know, only time will tell, I guess, how people will feel about it. But I certainly find it to be an interesting add-on to the human superpower toolkit. Look, Tony, you're doing so many amazing things, and I'm totally jealous of all that. With all this art, all the storytelling, what's like the impact you're hoping to create? What do you want people to get out of your work? I am just hoping that through anything I do, people are maybe more aware of the outlines of the matrix of which we currently live (laughs) and the, you know, the unspoken or unwritten rules that govern our everyday existence. And that includes the ones that we build ourselves um, that we often imprison ourselves in. And so I think by exploring things like, you know, these technology that's really pushing the bounds of human possibility, it just opens up, minds to kind of everything that's happening in our realities and um, and the foundational layers and structures that are governing that. So that's what I find really interesting and always is like the bedrock of everything that I'm doing. Very cool. Yeah. I, I like that answer. And, and also, if you could give advice to someone that's coming up now and they want to break into this new art world and they're, you know, just becoming aware of these new technologies, what suggestions would you would you give them? You know, spend some time researching and getting a sense of what's out there, what's available to play with and experiment with. Listen and read whatever you can from other people who are doing things in the space and then and then hit a deadline and say, okay, enough reading and kind of consuming. Now it's time to just get my hands dirty and experiment. 
And um, that can sometimes be the hardest part, <laughs> right? People are like afraid to afraid to use these new tools where there aren't a whole lot of rules and or written how-to guides. And that's actually the most exciting thing for explorers. But, um, but I think just getting in there and knowing that anything that you create is going to be additive at this point in the space. And so you gotta just, you gotta just get started. Well, that's great advice. You gotta roll the dice a bit with the risk, all you young artists out there. Um, I know we talked a lot about your work. You mentioned the, the book, but I'm wondering if we get a little sneak peek here. What's what's a future project you got in the works here? Oh man, you're trying to add like <laughs> things on my to-do list, Neil? Uh, just a sneak peek, Taryn. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping I can finish this book. Um, you know, I think along with the book, I'm I'm also I'm just getting back into a lot of my old media roots. So I'm actually gonna be starting a podcast very, very soon. Um, discussing a lot of the things that I find fascinating about the world of influence, um, kind of like digital anthropology, as I call it. And, uh, and then I think outside of that, you know what, I'm just going to give the, the unlikely answer, which is actually the right answer, which is like, I just want to spend more time with my cat. Uh, (laughs) And enjoy enjoy this like slowdown period, (laughs) you know, where we're not pushing so hard all the time. Yeah. We can definitely understand that. So if people want to find more out about what you're doing, how can yeah. they learn about you or get in touch with you too? They can find me on Instagram or Twitter. Just my name is Taryn Southern. It's the same handle across all platforms, same on YouTube. And I do, I do also work with companies. Um, every once in a while, I help consult around storytelling or digital campaigns, which is something I really enjoy when it's the right company and product. And I feel like I can really be additive. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm available and, and, and always enjoy these kinds of conversations on social media. Awesome. This has been awesome. Fantastic conversation. Thank you for sharing a a glimpse of your world and sharing so much with all of us through your art. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Taryn. It was a great interview. Thank you. Thanks guys. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you. Thank you.